0: Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. So, I'm going to be talking about waiting for Jesus, and waiting for Jesus to come again. I mean... So the opening uh, scripture, if we could put that one up there, comes from Hebrews 9, 27, 28. And it it comes out of this translation, which is one I particularly like right now, the Kingdom New Testament by N.T. Wright. Furthermore, just as it's laid down that humans have to die once, and after that comes judgment, so then the Messiah, having been offered once and for all to take away the sins of many, will appear a second time. This will no longer have anything to do with sin. It will be in order to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. Of course, we do know that when the Lord comes again, there will be some judgment involved. Now, whatever our views might happen to be about how that's going to happen, when it's going to happen, whether it's pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, no-trib, whatever, it doesn't matter, it's going to happen. If uh, many of you who are in the same age category as I am, may have gone through the same experience when you were younger of thinking Jesus was going to return in your lifetime. I certainly, when I was a young Christian, thought that very strongly. The whole Hal Lindsey thing was going on and uh, there was all kinds of books coming about that left behind and all of that stuff was coming out and a whole lot of people were thinking it's got to happen real soon. All the signs are lining up. Did you know that for many generations over the history of the church, people have thought the same thing often. One of the things that people think will happen, and we flip the slide, please. um, One of the things we think will happen uh, is that there'll be a number of signs available for us to kind of discern when it's happening. Nevertheless, a lot of people have thought they've seen the signs over the years and here are some a list of some of those occasions and you see that there's actually quite a few and there could be quite a few more, but I've only put down a few of them here on this slide and the next one. The first generation of Christians, the very first generation of Christians believed that Christ would return in their lifetime. And when the persecution of Nero broke out in 66-67 after the great fire of Rome, and Nero was persecuting and killing thousands of Christians because he made them scapegoats for the whole thing, the people of those days, the Christians of those days, thought the Lord has to be returning. This is, this is The signs are lining up. Under the Romans, there were other persecutions, but particularly bad ones in the 200s and 300s, made the Christians of that time think this must be it. The Lord's got to be coming back to take us out of this. This is horrible, terrible. Then after Rome had sort of converted to Christianity, the collapse of the Roman Empire made people 150 years later think that now must be the time. And we can go on. You can see some of these other ones. Remember the Millennium Panic of 2000? Well, there was one in 1,000 as well. And people in those days thought the signs are all lining up. Look at that. Then in the middle of the, or towards the end of the Middle Ages, there was the Black Death and there were horrible things going on and millions and millions of people were talk, talking about pandemics. COVID, as bad as it's been, has been a blip compared to that. One third of the population of Europe was wiped out in the Black Death in the space of six years. And we estimate that that was probably somewhere around 50 million people. If you can get your head around that. And that's not worldwide, that's one continent. And then during uh, the Reformation and afterwards there were all kinds of things then that people were saying, and flip again please, and there's a few more. Uh, th- the three huge events in modern history where people thought, here's the antichrist. Napoleon, World War I, World War Two, Hitler seemed like a dead ringer for the antichrist for a lot of people. And number 10, we kind of skim over, but that goes over the uh, the time I was just talking about when a lot of people were predicting it must be lining up. Look at all these different things going on. You know, the EU has to be the beast kingdom. Islam is the beast kingdom. Communism must be the beast kingdom. And does anybody want to put Putin or Putin up on the list here? Be cautious. That's all I'm saying here is be cautious. Let's not get too, too carried away with it. I mean, we don't really know. If we look at Revelation 12, we're not going to flip there, but um, I'm just going to mention Revelation 12 and some of the things we see in various passages of the New Testament. We have the monster. And then also, the, uh, it's also identified as a great dragon in Revelation 12. And the arrival or the manifestation of this has got to be one of the signs. We also have another person, or is it another person, mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2 by Paul, somebody he calls the son of lawlessness, which most people just think is another description for the beast or the monster. The beast or the monster is commonly interpreted to be Satan. Satan who is cast out of heaven and has been trapped on earth. Jesus makes a passing reference to this in one of his. Uh, he was rejoicing with the disciples about seeing all the great things that were happening. He was saying, "I saw, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven." This son of lawlessness, whom Paul uh, refers to, is thought to be the incarnation in human form of the satanic rebellion, and so in Revelation. If we're right about that, he would appear there as the mouthpiece of the beast. Then we have this other figure that's in Revelation 12, the woman. But this is not to be confirmed. There are two, there are two female figures. In Re- this, is not a, this is not a sermon about Revelation. It's, it's just pointing out a few things here. There are two women mentioned in Revelation. One is the woman in chapter 12 and the other is the Hur of Babylon in chapter 17. So we shouldn't confuse those two because the woman in chapter 12 is obviously very distinctly not that. So the woman is actually a a symbolic representation of Israel and the church. And they're they're not separated here. Some some of our thinking, we, we want to put Israel over here and the church over here. But in God's economy, they're not separated because they're both manifestations of God's purposes for humanity. So Satan's agenda, the beast's agenda, is to prevent or derail the whole agenda that God has for us. And so in the Old Testament, what you find is all these schemes that are being concocted to take Israel off the path. And in the New Testament, we see this being applied to Jesus. Satan first tried to destroy Israel using the temptation, temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is a medieval church summary of the three methodologies that Satan uses. The devil manifests in idolatry. First, in hoping to prevent the coming of the Messiah, and we see that repeatedly in the Old Testament with all these schemes that were put together to try kind to of destroy Israel and nearly doing it. And then, and now, in perverting the ecclesia. The ecclesia is the Greek name for church. And what that means is God's people. When Jesus came, Satan tried repeatedly to destroy him, to derail his mission of salvation and redemption. And then now for the last 2,000 years, he has been striving to derail the church and to complete the destruction of Israel. Ever wonder what the Holocaust was about? During World War II, it was about that completely eliminating Israel. That was Hitler's agenda. And of all the human manifestations of the Antichrist, well, that's probably the worst one yet. For Satan, and in God's perspective, Israel and Ecclesia are the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation 11. As the description of them as the two olive trees and the two menorahs makes clear. Okay, I don't want to go too much into that, but it's it's very interesting to see that symmetry there. Satan's problem is that he cannot destroy the woman. In other words, he can't destroy you see, we're part of this. Jesus sees us as his bride, the bride of Christ. Faithful Israel and the ecclesia, that's us, the church are God's called out people holding fast to his son. The best that Satan can do is cripple us, distract us, take us off the path. Okay, next slide. So let's look at these three things here, these three forms of temptation, these three ways that we wander off. Jesus takes them all on, and he breaks them. The first one, then, and, I've, and they're not in the order that I gave them in, in the medieval formula, the world the flesh and the devil, so the Jesus, way Jesus dealt with them was in this order, because these are the order of the temptations that came to him. Number one was the flesh, to turn stones into bread. This was the temptation to put flesh and its appetites, needs, Demands and lusts first. Satisfying the demands of the flesh, the physical nature above everything, can take many forms. But all such bondages lead to death. First, they are a faster way to die physically. Addictions kill people. Really bad addictions into really bad substances will kill them fast. But they also kill spiritually. Because they cut us off from God and we shut him out to satisfy our addictions and our appetites that's why jesus said in response to satan's temptation humans we are man in the old way of, man do not live does not live by bread alone we live by eating god's living word and that means having a relationship with Jesus, who is God's living word. We, made, we make our body to be his servant rather than letting us become slaves to our own appetites. And the second one is the world. And that temptation, when it came to Jesus, took the form of throw yourself down from the temple's pinnacle to prove you're God's son. In other words, show off your prowess in God's kingdom. Take control by impressing everybody. Use religion, because he was a religious figure, and religion is a form of gaining recognition and power. Use your religion, your prestige, and influence to gain power, esteem, position, influence all those good things that a lot of people want. Accumulate power, wealth, and position, and put yourself in God's place while pretending pretending to be faithful to him. People that have power agendas are really putting themselves in the place of the Lord. They're making themselves Lord. So it's not just about people that use Christianity, but about manipulating people and using whatever success you gain to lord it over others and you. So this can take all kinds of forms, all kinds of forms. People that have, let's say they have no religion are using this. Old saying by Lord Acton, familiar probably to a lot of you, "Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. By corollary, great power corrupts greatly. But even a little power sows the temptation to use it for your personal advantage. Ever been there? Had a position of authority and power and kind of used it, right? To promote yourself above. I confess, I've done it. It feels good to have power. Power is a rush. Using it can make you intoxicated with it. The more you want, right? The more you get, the more you want. It's just like wealth. Next one. Okay, the next the next one should be it's not going. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Got some frozen technology back there. Okay. Well, You probably know what it is. It's the devil, right? The next one is the devil. So the three forms of temptation. And how did Satan tempt Jesus, the Son of God, with this? Remember what he said? Bow down to me. Right? And what? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Right? Right? And here's the Son of God being tempted as a human being to take the easy road because Jesus knew what he was going to have to do. Hmm? Crucifixion and all the torture leading up to it and all the rejection, all the loneliness. There we go. Idolatry is really about worshiping false gods. And these days, we don't use the term false gods so much, unless maybe you're you know, into a religion that actually does still have idols. There are some of those out there. But ideology is the form of idolatry we in the West most use to justify what we want to do. Ideology is the worship of a set of ideas that you think are going to give all the answers. I was just seeing a quote by Thomas Sowell, a, a, a well-known American, sort of a philosopher, sociologist, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera, and, he, and he says, all the stupid things that have been tried have been tried and we keep trying them again. that's ideology we keep trying to get the different result using the same stupid ideas recycle them just you know dress them up a little bit put a little bit of new clothing on them make them sound a little more you know current and it should work right So Satan offers Jesus all the kings of the world if you will just bow down before him and Jesus rebukes him by saying you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. So the temptation, the difficulty is staying true in this culture because there's so much out there. If you want to get ahead you better just agree with it, right? Staying true to the one true God. God. And his one true son. It'd be much easier to latch on to the idols of the culture and society that we live in and then shut your mouth and go to the top. Jesus warns us that we will face persecution and have hard and even deadly trials. Remember that? He said, In this world, you will have trouble, tribulation, but take comfort, I've overcome the world. All its forms is death, both counts. There's two deaths, physical and spiritual. Okay, next point. So when you look at Revelation, if you're if you're a person that gets into that stuff, okay, I haven't been reading Revelation in detail lately. I've read it many times, but not lately. But remember this if you get into that. Because you can get carried away in all the stuff, right? All the details and all the sevens within sevens within sevens and the you know, this, that, and the other stuff, and how does that all work? And is the what's the chronology and you know, how's it all gonna play out and all that? Basically, probably you'll never figure it out. Nobody ever really has, so don't go down there. But keep a couple of things in mind that I have found very helpful. Revelation is about built around this bigger trick picture: how the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah—same person, like right? the two identity or the two ways that Jesus. Um, is showing himself to us as first the sacrificial lamb that God has provided for the sacrifice for all sins, for all men, for all time, okay? And secondly, the Lion of Judah, who is the one who's going to come and rule, if you read Psalm 2, with an iron scepter. Now, which one would you rather meet first? Huh? Huh? The Lamb of God who forgives and loves, and that's all you're going to get from him? Or the iron rod that breaks the earth to pieces like a piece of pottery? That's a scary one. So... All I'm suggesting here is if you if you get into Revelation, it's fascinating to get into. Instead of trying to untangle the kaleidoscope and chronology of Revelation's multiple visions and representations of how the world, the flesh, and the devil are swirling all around us, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, all right, see that it's a story about living for Jesus. That's what it is. It's a story about living for Jesus here and now while you wait for him to return. So it looks daunting and even kind of hopeless when we fix our eyes on all the stuff that might be this or that sign of the end. Like if you look around, maybe you're like me. Okay, this kind of feels like to me, and of course I'm old enough to think this way. Some of you are not there, but... It feels a lot like me to that time way back then when I was listening to all the signs, the signs that are lining up and all that kind of stuff. And you say, oh man, you know, Jesus must be going to return. I frankly hope he does. Like, wow, I don't want my life played on that, you know, the, the magna screen up in front of everybody. But uh, okay. Uh, instead, we need to go back to what Jesus and the apostles said about the living Living the good news and sharing God's love. That's what we need to go back to. Next. All right, still going. All right. Here's something that I found extremely helpful. Even when Jesus teaches about, you know, he was asked by the disciples, when is all these things going to happen? Matthew 24. Okay. Uh, Luke 21, Mark 13, I think it is, or I think it is, okay? He gives you, a thing. you know, there'll be wars and rumors of wars and all that kind of stuff, and he goes through a thing, and, you know, there'll be false Christs and all of that, but pay no attention to them. Don't listen to it. But he says there are three things you can look for. Three things. This is where I think these three things apply all the time, all the time. Number one, lawlessness will be on the increase. Two, many will find their love growing cold. But the one who lasts out to the end will be delivered. And number three, this gospel of the kingdom must be announced to the whole world as a witness to the nations. Next. So let's just briefly, we'll wrap this up pretty soon. Look at what this means, lawlessness. Now we still got law codes. So we're not talking about the absence of law codes here. We're talking about the absence of another kind of law. We're talking about the absence of God's law. Lawlessness is being without law, behaving as if law does not exist or count. People who do that in human societies are called outlaws. But the meaning in scripture is being without God's law, living as if God's law doesn't exist. Human rules not based on God's rules can sometimes and too often actually contradict God's law and violate his created order. Remember when uh, the, the pre- chief priests arrested the apostles, Peter and John, and said, stop preaching this name. That was their law. That was their rule. Their ruling about, they were violating Moses' law, or at least they interpreted it that way. And Peter and John said, You judge. Should we be obeying your rules or God's rules? I mean, I'm paraphrasing it, but that's basically what they said. Is it better to obey God's law or your law? He was differentiating. And I'm not saying go out there and disobey the law. Please don't interpret it that way, okay? What I am saying is that sometimes we've got to look at human rules and say, do these actually force me to violate God's rules? many forms. We're not going to go to these passages, but if you're curious about what lawlessness actually looks like, is it described? There are a bunch of places it's described. Galatians 5, 19 to 21, just before the verse about the fruits of the Spirit, if you remember that, they have this list of things that are definitely the opposite, Okay. Second Thessalonians two, we've mentioned already. Second Timothy three, verses two to five, and then second Peter verses three and following. Peter goes through a very long discussion of this, OK. That's what lawlessness by God's perspective looks like. Second: cold love. This is about cold agape in Greek unlike English, has four words for love, there's only one of them used here, and it's agape. And it's the same word that's used all through the New Testament when it's talking about God's love. This is particular. When the New Testament talks about God's love and the kind of love Jesus' people are called to nurture and share with one another and all people, it says agape, which is the highest form of love which governs all the others. All of the others, we won't go through them, are ruled by agape. If they don't have agape, they're incomplete. They cannot fully express what love is intended to be. Agape is selfless, sacrificial love, giving without expecting to receive back. And of course, the highest example is Jesus giving his life for all of us on the cross. So what Jesus is saying is that it will be cold love that will be a sign What he's saying is that agape has gone missing. Very hard to find. And he also makes a statement, a very cryptic statement, which has always not only puzzled, but kind of distressed me. If it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. Now there's a big if there, right? I don't want to go into the discussion of predestination, all that kind of stuff. But that's a verse that causes me pain. Even people naming Jesus as Lord will find their agape, the desire and ability to feel, sense, and even want to show the love of God drying up. So what I get out of that is that I need to take my agape temperature. I need to face up to that, where am i at with this like how how readily am i prepared to show this kind of love like some of us may have just from the way we're made more difficulty with it than other people but it can be overcome through god through jesus next one all right i think this one is actually happening and has been happening for a long time now. Okay? And if that's true, I'm kind of saying, well, what are you waiting for, Lord? Global evangelism has been happening for a long time now by a mission work, literature, radio, TV, and now we also have in this, te- this time, 21st century social media. Like, if you want to go on, go on YouTube, of course, you can find everything from absolute garbage to totally wonderful stuff. Okay, and very gospel and all of that. Okay, very good, solid stuff on there, all through the spectrum. So it's out there. But even though that's all out there, and anybody who's got access can get to it, unless they're being blocked by their government, perhaps, we're not excused. We have to still show this agape good news. In person. With the people that are around us. I mean. That stuff can be out there in the ether. All you know. All we want. But some people will not hear it. Unless we tell them. Unless we show it. Sometimes we need to do the showing. Before the telling. Am I doing that. Without going through all of the rest of what's on there. The questions I have then, am am I I doing that? Am I being faithful to the the reach that I have? And then, final thing. If we can go to the last one. I think it's almost the last one. Okay. Not quite. Climate change is reality. No debate here about, you know... (coughs) What I'm getting at here is not the physical de- debate about physical climate change or say, uh, okay, whether or not you believe in human-caused climate change, the hard data shows pretty convincingly the world is undergoing some serious climatological transition. And a lot of it is causing huge turmoil tra- turmoil and trauma all over the world. You just have to look around and see what's going on in Europe, other continents, everything else, Okay. The incredible heat waves in England, they've had temperatures they've never seen before in recorded history. In Europe, they've had droughts where even a major, major river like the Rhine River is going dry. If you've ever been over there, you realize that that would be like the Ottawa River driving up. It's, It's the same size of river. You're saying, wow! Can you imagine? The Ottawa River drying up? It's not totally dry, but they can't even have—they can't even put other than very shallow draft boats on it anymore. And it's a major shipping route. But the physical is also a thermometer pointing to huge spiritual climate change. Do you feel it? Have you felt it? Do you get a sense of it? There's a shift happening here. There are two sides of reality, but they're not separate. Because one and the other are totally real. Mounting crisis all over the world—you can see it, see it. You can see it being manifest in the way so, uh, social issues are going and all that. Jesus warns us not to try to predict this stuff, but he says, "Be ready," because we don't know when it's going to happen. And he says, "Keep doing what you're supposed to do." Okay. I think there's, yep. Maranatha. Familiar with that word? It's how the Bible ends. Maranatha. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. I'm just going to close with prayer. And then give it back to Aaron. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that your word is faithful and true. That Jesus is Lord Jesus is Lord. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And he will prevail. Lord, teach us to keep on keeping on. And how we need to do that in a time where it's getting more and more difficult and the darkness seems to be getting darker. Let us be light, Lord, in the way that you've called us to be and show you our agape love. Whenever we can and however we can. We ask it in your Son's gracious name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.